Critical infrastructure like water plants, power plants, and sewage treatment facilities have become increasingly digital over the past few decades. These changes have seen analog systems replaced with digital components so that operation of these facilities requires little human intervention. Remote access technologies allow third parties to manage many facilities at once, creating operating efficiencies. In short, digitizing and networking critical infrastructure allowed for major optimizing. Unfortunately, this modernization created a new attack surface for cyber criminals and nation states to put critical infrastructure at risk. In this episode, we welcome special guest Dave Weinstein to the show to discuss why we've seen the relentless digitization of critical infrastructure, what's broken, and how we fix it. Dave Weinstein is an associate partner at McKinsey & Company. Dave began his career at U.S. Cyber Command as a cyber operations planner and formerly served as chief technology officer of New Jersey. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Josh. Great to be here. Yeah, well, um, I loved your article in the Wall Street Journal um, about water treatment plants. And uh, I thought this is a recurring topic for us on the show about the digitization of, uh, of previously analog operational technology um, and what some of the benefits are for that, but also what kinds of attack surfaces that opens up and what, what can really happen. And I thought you did a great job outlining that narrative. And I'm really excited to have you on the show to talk a little bit about that. Uh, and I know that you know, based on your background, um, both being very technical and serving in government at various levels, um, and now you know, as, as a consultant, um, uh, dealing with these issues on a daily basis and helping people to think through the problems, you've got a really unique perspective. So very excited to have you on. I thought we would start with um, just an overview for the listeners who may not be familiar with the particulars of a, yeah, a water treatment plant. Uh, but since yeah. this the, the Oldsmar attack kind of prompted, I'm sure, uh, a lot of the impetus for your article, uh, let's start with just explaining how do water treatment plants work? Like what, what is their function? Uh, what are the components that are in them? And, um, and how do they all fit together? Yeah. Thanks. So the, the Altmar attack really hit home for me. Um, as you said, I was the, the CTO of New Jersey and, and in that capacity, spent a fair amount of time um, interacting with owners and operators of critical infrastructure in the state from, you know, public utilities like, you know, uh, like, like electric and gas, but also water. And, and water is a bit unique um, as a, as a, as a utility in the United States and, and globally as well, in the sense that um, there are so many of them and the vast majority of them serve relatively small communities. So it's, it's not necessarily like your electric utility where you may have a couple in a region or, um, you know, uh, you know, state-based utilities or, or regional based utilities. Water utilities are, are owned and operated in, in large part at the municipal level, which um, is good and bad, right? It's good because um, it creates redundancy in the system. If there's an incident at one facility, it doesn't necessarily uh, impact everyone. Um, it's, it's a challenge, though, um, because when you have so many municipally owned and operated uh, treatment plants, um, there's resource challenges uh, around things like like security. So when you think about you know what water treatment plants do and how they work, to your point, um, as you know, they're they're designed to make the quality of water 
suitable for for drinking and every other uh, other everyday activities, things like bathing, irrigation, recreation for pools. And they they perform industrial processes to remove the toxins and, and other contaminants from the water. So the, the industrial processes themselves are mostly chemical in nature, and, and I'm hardly an expert on, on the science of, of water treatment, but I'm, I'm very familiar with the technologies that are used to automate the science, if you will. Um, and water treatment plants, at least those in, in the developed world in, in North America, uh, leverage a whole host of operational technologies, purpose-built hardware and software systems to perform uh, these these water treatment processes. Yeah, it's really interesting that you start with like the physical um, differences between water treatment facilities and say, you know, an, um, a power generation plant. Um, is the reason that there are so many uh, distributed water treatment facilities that it's harder to transport water than it is to transport uh, electricity over long distances? Or is there like, you know, long complicated political history for why there are so many uh, small ones or, or some combination of them? It, it, it's really a combination of the two. There, there is definitely different uh, distribution challenges associated with water. Um, and, and many of those, um, those distribution systems are, are legacy in nature. They've been in place for, for decades upon decades. Um, and, and upgrading them, changing them, um, is, uh, is a challenge to say the least, but there's also, um, as you, you mentioned, kind of local considerations, um, uh, at, at play here. And, um, frankly, you know, there, there's a lot of benefits to having, um, you know, hyper-local municipal water utilities, um, because they're, they're community-based, they know exactly who they're serving, and they can be built um, to operate in a manner that's conducive to the community, right? And I mean, these things have been around for decades and decades and decades. I mean, water, water treatment is one of the probably first examples of public utility, I would imagine. Um, yep. And the development of these water treatment facilities definitely predates the transistor. Um, so how were people uh, performing the control um, function of water treatment facilities, whether that's, you know, using the, um, uh, you know, treating the, the water by removing physical components or adding particular kind of chemicals to, to clean the water and make it safe and potable um, and then move it through this whole controls process. How did that happen before before the, the digital era? Yeah, so, so if you break down water treatment uh, into its component parts, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but just know just enough to be slightly dangerous. Um, there, are, there are four high-level processes. There's the coagulation process, sedimentation, filtration, and then the last step is, um, is disinfection. And, and for, for most water treatment plants, as I said, at least in, in North America, but also uh, across the developed world, each of these process and processes involves some sort of automation and therefore relies on you know, digitized industrial control systems. Um, coagulation, for example, the first step involves adding chemicals to the water. Um, this can be done manually and, and at one point in time, uh, 
uh, I'm sure it was done manually, um, but being able to, to meet the quality standards uh, and the expectations of consumers as well as you know uh, regulators um, these days, you know manual processes just don't cut it. Um, so actually, you know, there's been there's been um, a level of automation in place um, for for quite some time as it relates to, for example, uh, the, the coagulation process and adding chemicals during those early stages of, of water treatment. Um, similarly, you know, disinfection, um, which is the last step, uh, also involves adding things like chlorine to the water. And, and we can talk in the context of, you know, um, the Oldmar attack, how attackers specifically tried to, to exploit uh, these processes. The, the difference, you know, that that really has taken shape, I'd say over the last 10 years, but particularly over the last five years, is these automation functions uh, that have been in place for some time um, across, uh, across America's water utilities um, are becoming more and more uh, reliant on IT systems. Um, for enhanced productivity, enhanced efficiency, and in some kind, in some in some cases, enhanced reliability. If you think about remote maintenance uh, capabilities, uh, so this this IT OT convergence, which is kind of a secular uh, phenomenon across the, the critical infrastructure uh, ecosystem, as you know, um, has been a particularly risky one for. Um, for water utilities, particularly those managed at the municipal level, um, because on the one hand, they really need the benefits of, of ITOT convergence to deal with, you know, lean staffs, uh, you know, resource constraints. Most recently, the, the new demands placed on their workforce due to COVID-19 and remote, remote working. Um, at the same time, they are least prepared uh, and equipped to deal with the associated risks. That is, you know, the, 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 the increased likelihood that web-based attacks or traditional IT tactics um, can, can, provide, uh, can provide actors access to these industrial environments. So, you know, even whereas, you know, they, they've had a level of digitization um, for a number of years, only recently uh, have those systems become uh, more exposed to uh, to cyber threats and, and cyber risks uh, more generally. Yeah, I, I like the way you laid that out because, and we've seen this in so many contexts where you have kind of like the revenue generating assets of a business or the uh, the components of a municipality or a federal agency that do the mission of that organization yeah. started from a very analog place, right? Uh, tedious, error-prone processes. Um, manufacturers start bringing digitized components to market to solve a lot of these analog problems. Yep. We see faster, cheaper, more reliable, more robust components replacing the aging analog stuff. Seems to work really well. And then because people, uh, you know, have ingenuity, they start thinking, well, what, okay, this is digital. Well, what if we start um, automating more of this? Or what if we start um, 
aggregating the, the, the operational control of all of these assets to a remote operating center or yeah. connecting these things, like you say, the IT OT convergence. And it takes different forms in different places, but we see this all over the place, whether it's you know, in the ICS and SCADA space, like, like, like a water treatment facility or manufacturing, but also um, with, with fleet management, right? We're seeing this with, with, with things like locomotives, aircraft, and, and military weapon systems. We see it with IoT devices, right? Um, these sort of like tiny little, you know, couple dollar machines that are full computers that, that do um, kind of discrete tasks for an enterprise. And at least in, in a lot of these other industries, this, this change happened by degrees. You know what I mean? We started from one place and then you just sort of have smart people making kind of, I don't want to use the term myopic because that sounds like kind of derogatory, but like making decisions that make sense kind of incrementally. But then when you look back over three decades, you're like, wow, like we have a system with some real problems here. Right. Um, so yeah, maybe like digging in a little bit insofar as we understand what happened in the Oldsmar um, case, like what was the system intended to do? Uh, and then how was that system subverted by an attacker to do something really bad? Yeah. So, you know, first, first of all, uh, I agree with your framing. And, and just before I jump into the, the Oldsmar piece, just an anecdote, and, and I, I, I alluded to this in the article, but, um, you know, I've, I've, as, I, as I said, I've spent a fair amount of time uh, talking with these owners and operators to include plant managers. And, and these are folks that have two primary uh, objectives in mind. The first is, is safety, right? Safety always comes first within these facilities. And that's, that's inextricably linked to, you know, water quality um, in, in this case. And the second is is availability and, and uptime. And when you think about the demands um, that many of these plant managers are under, um, in in light of having dealt with kind of years and years of incremental um, uh, uh, additions of new technology on top of on top of legacy systems, um, they're thinking about how can I be uh, more efficient in my operations, and how can I make sure that you know I guarantee uptime, um, ultimately in the interest of, of safety and, and, and water quality, um, and that's where they're they're I think most recently faced with this decision. You know, does um, does the incremental connectivity that we're providing, whether it's to allow you know technicians to perform remote maintenance, or you know have more sensors on the network to, to, uh, to, to send data to the cloud so that we can do analysis or, or, or predictive analysis. Those are, are kind of the, the conflicts that they're dealing with and trying to understand, you know, what is, what is the risk reward here? And, and you know, the Ultimar incident, to your point, is, uh, is a great example that, uh, of kind of that conflict between the benefits of greater connectivity and, and the, uh, the, the, the operations of the plan. In this case, um, there was um, apparently, so, so this was a remote access attack and, and by all accounts, uh, the attacker tried to poison the local water supply by, by increasing the, the concentration of sodium hydroxide in the water by about a uh, hundred times, which is you know obviously pretty significant. 
And, and apparently the Oldsmar plant have been using a remote access software called TeamViewer, right? Pretty common software um, that um, could have been in place um, due to kind of the increased uh, demands on the workforce due to COVID-19 or, or for, for other remote access purposes. Um, the problem was it was, uh, it was apparently exposed to the internet, which um, again, uh, you know, goes back to this notion of, of granting uh, hackers the ability to leverage traditional web-based approaches to, uh, to exploiting and ultimately attacking what should be pretty hardened and, and, and isolated environments. Um, so, so the exposure of TeamViewer in this case to the internet really lowered the barriers to entry and, um, and, and allowed what appears to be um, a pretty unsophisticated attack. Um, it, it's not known how the attacker actually obtained the, the credentials to, to hack the account. Um, but you know, one can one can imagine it was through something like spear phishing or or other credential theft tactics. Um, again, kind of traditional IT tactics. Um, but but all signs point to it being pretty unsophisticated. Um, that the attackers didn't cover their tracks. Um, we can talk about how it was ultimately discovered, but but they made it very obvious to uh, to the operators at the plant that that something weird was going on. Um, they didn't account for other controls, physical controls that that were actually in place downstream in order to uh, to detect the the increased concentration of sodium hydroxide in the water. So um, you know it's an example of how um, how it's it's just getting easier and easier for um, for attackers to to exploit vulnerabilities in these networks, whereas you know maybe. Five years ago, ten years ago, um, attacks against critical infrastructure um, tended to, you know, be the work of, of state-sponsored actors. They didn't necessarily monopolize the space, but but it was typically the work of state-sponsored actors. Whereas this um, this appears to be pretty unsophisticated. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, and I think it goes back to the ITOT convergence problem. Like the this kind of attack, right, where something is just hanging out on the internet with either we don't know, but it could have been poor credentials, easily guessed credentials, or it could have been, uh, to your point, traditional kind of spear phishing, credential harvesting type stuff. Or around this time, and again, we don't have any evidence beyond the timing here. Uh, the the uh, combination of multiple breaches, that massive like database that was floating around billions and billions of, of credentials, yeah. um, you know, uh, that in combination with tools that are available to everyone, like uh, Shodan, right, where you can you can go and search the Internet. It's like a Google for devices yeah. is, is kind of a, a one way to think of Google for services. Um, you know, there are people that are constantly scanning the internet for good and for bad to try to secure it and to attack it, to find things like TeamViewer just hanging out on the internet. Um, or, you know, there's there's always these examples of totally unsecured services. There was like MongoDB uh, and, um, and Memcache back a couple of years ago, just like thousands of these things hanging out on the internet unsecured. This is an IT attack, right? Like these are these are attacks that folks have done against IT systems for, for decades. Um, uh, and 
the reason this has become a problem for critical infrastructure is to your point, because as we've started building layers and layers of software functionality on top of these digital components, the second that we sort of transfer into the, from the IT to the OT space, now all of a sudden all these IT attack surfaces become relevant to OT to like potentially yeah. devastating effect. And, and I like the way you laid that out in the article. And, and um, it, I think it really helps folks to crystallize like, oh, like this is why it is um, now coming to public consciousness that, that these attacks are real, they're happening, and, and they're a huge problem. On that point, um, what, what's particularly alarming, not only is that, you know, not only are the barriers to entry falling for, for OT attacks, um, but once hackers cross that threshold, so to speak, to the other side of the firewall, um, they, they, they're now operating, you know, under a different set of rules with far less, you know, traditional security measures in place to be able to detect, um, to detect their activity. And, and I think it's important to note that when, when, when attackers are on the network, on the OT network, more often than not, if you look at the case studies, whether it be electric utilities, water utilities, or, or manufacturing sites, um, different OT environments, um, they're leveraging the native capabilities of the OT systems themselves. They're not necessarily hacking. They're not necessarily exploiting um, the devices. They're just using them as they are designed to be used, um, but not as they're intended to be used, right? Um, and that makes security really hard because um, then you need to provide, then you need to gain kind of a deeper level of insight into, act, you know, activity at the, at the network level and at the asset level to be able to detect anomalies. And, and it's important to note, like in the case of Altsmar, the only anomaly that was detected um, wasn't a network anomaly. It was, you know, the fact that, that the operator saw uh, his mouse moving on his screen and, and issuing commands from, from an engineering workstation to a, to a PLC. Um, now, it's important to note, and, and I, I note in the article that this is actually mostly a, a good news story, right, which seems a little, um, seems a little kind of, uh, might seem a little surprising. But at the end of the day, even had the, the operator not noticed uh, the anomaly on the screen, uh, the plant had the right controls in place downstream in order to, to detect this. So that's a, a good thing. Um, but nevertheless, illustrative in terms of um, the need to have um, controls in place at the network level on the OT side to detect anomalies that, that aren't going to be signature based, aren't going to be you know, necessarily leveraging malware. Um, but they're they're very much uh, behavioral and operational in nature. I think that's so smart. Um, you know, the way I think about security on these systems that are already out there, they're going to be in service for decades. No one's going to replace them because of yeah. security problems. They're they're going to be in service for decades. And the challenge for the security community is how do we um, how do we raise the bar on security significantly without incurring costs that are equivalent to completely replacing these systems? Because that's, that's just not going to happen, right? And I feel like two really important threads to pull out of your recommendations, um, which I completely agree with, are, you know, one is um, anomaly detection. The heartening thing about this story is that um, 
you know, anomaly detection doesn't necessarily need to be cyber anomaly. It's just anomaly, right? And so there are already control measures in place to make sure that, hey, if there's a mechanical failure or there's an operator failure, um, to your point, you know, the control mechanisms are in here on a digital level. Like the system is designed for you to have the flexibility to change these parameters around. You need a no, you need a check to make sure that the way you're manipulating that system, whether intentional or unintentional, is safe. Right. And so, thankfully, you know those control measures are sort of built in. Um, you know, something we say a lot is like you know anomaly detection for maintenance and operational anomalies. It, it doesn't have to be that dissimilar from what you're detecting on a cyber on a cyber perspective. Uh, the second part, which I also really like, is you know the observability problem, right? Yep. So, as you mentioned, if you're if you're not collecting data on these important touch points inside of your inside of your system, you're not pulling network data, you're not pulling operating characteristic and sensor and actuator data. Uh, your problem is exponentially harder because you're sort of you're, you're you're observing in the blind, and if there's a problem, it's going to be much harder for you to detect that that problem happens yep. uh, than than if you're if you're instrumenting your your systems properly. Um, you know, and I think honestly, we we got a little lucky with Oldsmar because it was such a lowbrow attack. I mean, you know, somebody kind of found TeamViewer. I read you know some reporting that they were kind of like dorking around, like moving a mouse around, trying to figure out the controls and stuff. Yeah. So very unsophisticated. It's, it's, it's scary that an unsophisticated attacker got that far, but you compare that with some of the other um, reporting on like water system attacks that we see, uh, for example, in the Middle East, yeah. you know, um, there, or, or, or like uh, Stuxnet, you know, sort of like nuclear reactor stuff uh, where the attackers apparently really knew what they were doing because they knew yeah that there are anomaly detection algorithms in place that say, hey, if these centrifuges are spinning at two times their normal speed, it's going to trigger physical alarms and there's going to be an incident response and we're going to get caught. Right. What we need to be is low and slow, understand the rules of the system, manipulate them just enough so that we're putting them into a, a, a seriously degraded situation, report back you know, data that seems like everything's fine. You know, that level, to your point, is it, we, we call it state sponsor because it's, it's just it requires a lot of resources and thinking and time and attention to do these things. But those attacks are totally feasible, right? And and yeah. so I would love to hear your thoughts about. Well, cool. I think there's a good news story in that the lowbrow attack sort of got caught because of existing systems. But like, where are things going? Um, yeah. You know, when there's a motivated attacker who really wants to subvert this critical infrastructure and they can get in below these systems, like. Like, where do we as a security community need to evolve to be able to catch those sorts of things? Yeah. So I, I think there needs to be a certain acceptance um, that we're, we're operating in a new state where um, a capable and, 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 uh, and motivated actor with, with sufficient resources um, is going to be able to gain access to, you know, utilities, whether they be... Uh, what are utilities or, 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 or other types of critical infrastructure? Um, that's not to say um, that they will, but we should operate uh, with that mindset and, and think less about how do we keep them out and more about once they're in, how do we uh, detect them proactively and mitigate the, the risk of, of, uh, of a potential attack? You know, I, I think we have to think about uh, both of those issues um, as it relates to OT security, we've traditionally thought a lot about how do we keep them out. Now, on, on, on the just to decouple them for a second, on the, the 
the concept of keeping them out and, and you know, the, the perimeter based approach, if you will. Um, you know, one, one, one argument is, you know, we need to totally uh, isolate every single operational technology environment from, from anything digital, um, anything remotely um, networked or, or internet connected. Um, that sounds great from a security perspective, but most of the, the organizations I talk to, whether they're in the manufacturing sector or, or even utilities, uh, just can't live with that. It's just not, not palatable from a, a business perspective. Um, so really it comes down to what risks are we willing to accept? What risks are we willing to mitigate? Um, and, and that conversation I find, you know, happens, um, too late in the game for organizations kind of after they have, you know, an incident or a breach. Um, and I think with respect to kind of that, that perimeter based mindset, um, the conversation needs to be, needs to be had sooner. I, I think we'll probably land in a place where we are uh, laser focused on preventing the Oldsmars of the world. In other words, you know, the, 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 uh, the web-based uh, attack from a script kitty, right? And really focused on saying, listen, if you're going to compromise my, my utility, you're really going to have to work for it. You know, and, and you might even need physical access, um, you know, going back to like, you know, the, the Stuxnet example where where it's presumed there was there was an insider. So um, that's that goes back to like, how do we how do we elevate the barriers to entry, um, but also be realistic about um, some of the offensive advantages um, and, and then to mitigate the, the, the risk acceptance that's taking place on kind of the perimeter based approach. Um, that's when organizations need to turn inward and say, we're going to take a proactive approach to not only hunting for threats on our network, um, but, you know, building, building layers of defense, defense in depth, if you will, um, so that um, it's, it's not easy for actors to traverse the network and they have to go beyond leveraging the native capabilities of, of devices in order to, uh, to affect physical processes in our environment that, that, that might be harmful. Um, now, you know, what, what organizations, what, what security practitioners are up against in that endeavor is introducing friction into the operational environment, right? As I said, plant, plant managers are focused on safety and availability. Um, and if all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're throwing all these security controls into their industrial processes, um, that, that could, you know, disrupt the, the status quo, particularly if you have a, a, a pretty legacy environment. Um, so practitioners need to be a mindful of that, um, so that, you know, their, 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 their recommendations and approaches aren't, aren't, aren't dead on arrival. Um, but B need to need to really have a transparent conversation at the plant level in this case about what risks we're willing to accept and, and what we're not. And, and, you know, my conversations with, with a lot of these folks seem to suggest that a lot of organizations are, are landing in, an, in, in a place where they're, they're saying, um, I'm willing to accept you know, certain risks associated with the most sophisticated actors who are spending enormous resources to break my network. 
Um, what I'm not willing to accept is, you know, the, the Oldsmar incident, right? And and I think that's that's a really good place to land, at least, you know, in the next three to five years for a lot of these uh, a lot of these utilities. Yeah, I, I totally share that uh, that intuition that we need to like raise the bar from you know the floor to a level where okay, we're talking about really well funded, sophisticated attackers that you know, honestly, it may be easier for them to just gain physical access to this thing than than to 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 try to swim through the convenience software that we've layered on top of our OT systems. And I I think that's really smart. One of the interesting questions that become that comes up is okay, well, for those risks we want to mitigate, uh, how do we do that mitigation? So you know, you you know, I talked a little bit about solving some of the observability and the anomaly detection problem. And I know you, Dave, uh, actually spent time at a company uh, who was uh, bringing products to market to try to solve some of these problems specific for OT. Can you tell me a little bit about, I mean, look, cybersecurity is not a new thing. There are multi-billion dollar cybersecurity companies that have been around for decades delivering all kinds of cybersecurity products for technology. Uh, what is it about, you know, antivirus and web application firewalls and network intrusion detection systems uh, that they work really well in an enterprise IT environment, but we, we can't graft those or bring them directly into an OT environment? Yeah. So I, I'd say it's there, there's two components. One is technical and the other is cultural, right? I'll, I'll, I'll start with the technical piece. And from from a, a, a pure technology standpoint, uh, for example, Monitoring an IT network and, and monitoring an OT network are, are two entirely just dis- different disciplines and, and, and functions and require a different tool set, right? To, to be frank, um, IT networks are, 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 are largely open, running on, on unknown protocols. OT networks, for the most cases, um, are, are closed and leverage proprietary protocols. And unless you're able to, to parse those protocols, um, you're a not going to gain really good visibility into all the assets on your network, and b it's going to be hard to establish a high fidelity baseline of how those uh, those assets are are uh, supposed to interact with each other. Um, OT networks, as you know, are highly predictable and highly repeatable. They follow patterns in, in how they operate. Um, so deviations from those patterns are. Uh, often indicative of uh, of an issue, uh, not necessarily a malicious issue. Um, sometimes it could just be kind of a, a, a benign operational problem. Um, but nevertheless, those are um, that 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 typically constitutes that the smoke, if you will, for for somebody who's monitoring a network. Uh, and and then you know it requires a, additional uh, investigation to to determine if there's there's fire there. Some of the tried and true principles, um, you know, on the IT uh, side apply. They just require, you know, a, a different tool set and, and a different different approach. One area that's that's particularly um, impactful on the OT side that I think a lot of organizations are rightly prioritizing these days is is segmentation, and it gets back to this notion of. Okay, let's assume that that there's a compromise. 
how are we going to mitigate the, the the ability of actors to traverse the network and and um, and, and cause damage? Um, and, um, and and I've seen you know in terms of having the greatest impact from a risk reduction perspective in the shortest period of time, um, segmentation can be a big win for organizations um, on the OT network level. And then if you can get into micro segmentation and, and establishing specific zones, um, then you're really reaching you know, a, a higher level of maturity. Um, so there's some technical differences and then there's some cultural differences. And, and I alluded to this earlier, which is, you know, on the IT side, you're thinking about security, privacy, and compliance for both. Uh, OT side is always about uh, safety and, and availability. Um, and I think, you know, owners and operators struggle um, to, to, to really see the value or the ROI, if you will, in, in security investments on the OT side. Um, you know, compared to, you know, their mandate to keep things running all the time. Perfect example is, you know, trying to apply a patching methodology or a vulnerability management approach um, that, you know, might work on the IT side, bring down the network for, for two hours on the weekend and, and, and update your OSs. Um, but, but, you know, bringing that solution to, to an OT practitioner or industrial uh, automation engineer um, it's just a non-starter because they can't afford to bring down the the uh, the plant number one and number two. Even if they could, um, they're too afraid that you know installing a patch would 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 cause uh, would would cause damage. And you know there there's an additional level of testing that that would have to occur in order to to grant uh, you know confidence to to the key stakeholders and get their get their buy-in. So that. That cultural kind of acceptance of security as a core part of the OT mission and the the, the buy-in in its value is still uh, a lot of challenges for organizations that you know are, are converging IT and OT, um, but but security still remains largely an enterprise function. Um, now you know incidents like NotPetya and others have I think brought this to, to, to light a little bit more and, or brought it to life, I should say, a little bit more for, for, uh, for folks on the OT side. Um, but there's still a little bit of a, a cultural divide there. That makes so much sense. And I think, to my mind, one of the reasons that these incidents are helping security transcend the IT-OT boundary is that these cybersecurity incidents are creating safety and availability problems. And so right. now you're registering in their in their objective functions, right? Um, you know, we had in a in a in a fleet context, there was a short line operator called um Omnitrax, uh that that's uh, one of the largest shoreline operators that got hit just randomly with 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 ransomware. Like it was a totally unsophisticated random attack, but it shut down their operations. They were unable to operate their locomotives because of this kind of IT attack. Um, one of the things I really liked that you highlighted was that there are both technical and cultural challenges for why we can't just blindly apply IT cybersecurity principles, practices, and tools to OT. Uh, and one of the biggest reasons is that uh, rightly, plant managers are, are terrified that 
automated patch management and some of these kind of like very modern cybersecurity practices um, are non-starters because they could create service disruptions or outages or cause damage. Uh, to go back to an earlier point you made, uh, serving the functions of observability and anomaly detection, though, that can be done entirely passively, right? Yeah. So you can make assurance, safety assurances that the cybersecurity mitigations you're putting into place aren't going to cause safety or, 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 or reliability issues. Um, one of the challenges, and, and no doubt uh, you're aware from your, your days uh, at a cybersecurity product company addressing uh, just this issue, is that um, uh, to a large extent, each of these facilities, each of these ICS SCADA systems are unique. They're, they're unique snowflakes. They have different PLCs. And you, know, you, were, you were articulating that um, the traffic that goes over these networks is, is very regular. Uh, it, is, it has a, a cadence to it that is, that is very specific. So the noise floor is very low. Unfortunately, though, across different systems, the language of that network um, is going to be different. The protocols yeah. are going to be different. The control messages, you know, sometimes like the way these, these things get programmed, like different register values mean different things in different places. And so um, one of the challenges that I think uh, cybersecurity product companies have is each time they go to one of these systems, you're in some sense having to write almost a custom network intrusion detection system for, for those is, do you see, I mean, maybe this is a, a startup idea for you at some point in the future, you don't want to let it slip. Um, but do you see a, a way through this fundamentally hard problem of customization uh, to where, you know, we, we may be able to approach, for example, what endpoint security products are able to do on Windows systems, right? You, you, you write a, an antivirus or, or an intrusion detection or a hunt tool uh, for a specific operating system, and then you, you, you're able to defend millions or billions of devices. Uh, how do we how do we approach that on the on the OT side? So um, I, I don't think there is a silver bullet technically for, for that problem. If there is, um, somebody's gonna somebody's gonna do pretty well. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't be um, telling me. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, that said, uh, I think we've made tremendous progress um, particularly around being able to provide vendor agnostic um, approaches to OT security, recognizing that largely a lot of these, not companies, but, but plants within companies are defined by the, the, uh, the, the, the types of industrial control systems in the environment um, and, and, and the manufacturers of, of, of those products. Right. So the, the challenge uh, is, is being able to take, you know, for example, um, uh, a, a, an OT environment that maybe spans 10 different plants with five different uh, five different automation vendors and being able to, to consolidate all those different languages into a single syntax that can be consumed and actioned by a security analyst sitting in a ITOT SOC who isn't necessarily deep on OT, um, but is more of a generic security analyst, right? Um, so being able to translate that, um, you know, very unique OT native language into a more universal syntax that, um, that humans and ultimately machines can, um, can read and, and make uh, decisions based on, 
is really, I think, the key point um, in, in this journey. It's a, a key inflection point. I don't think we're there yet, but but I've noticed um, over the last couple of years that there's been a lot of industry-wide progress, um, both on the provider side as well as the enterprise side, the, the, the consumers of the tech, um, to be able to harmonize those those two uh, those two environments. Um, because at the end of the day, as you know, as IT and OT are converging from a technology perspective, so too they must converge from a, a security perspective. And there's, you know, there's a technology component to that, but I think we often uh, neglect the people piece, which is making sure that you know there's uh, individuals who are cross-trained on IT and OT um, within your SOC, and, and that there's you know a governance program for an organization. Uh, specific to OT that that uh, that mirrors what's happening on the IT and ultimately they they funnel up to a single you know enterprise risk uh, risk strategy. So yeah, there's some technical hurdles. I'm not sure there's a silver bullet um, in terms of being able to, to uh, overcome some of those challenges. But I, I, I have seen a lot of progress in, in recent years, and I think you know once we get to that place where where um, you can kind of bring together the uh, IT security operations world and the OT security operations world under a single umbrella with a common uh, vernacular integrated <clears throat> integrated playbooks, um, then I think you know you're going to see uh, a major paradigm shift in, in you know the ability to reduce risk on that side of the house. I totally agree and. Uh, I wonder how much of this is a responsibility of original equipment manufacturers going forward to uh, congeal around a set of common standards or ontologies for how you design these systems, uh, because it is it is a fundamentally hard problem being the adapter of taking these very proprietary and bespoke protocols and lifting them up into, I, I love how you say this, you know, lifting them up into a representation that's common uh, that people and algorithms can understand so that you can consume these things in, in intrusion detection um, uh, algorithms. You can bring them into SIM tools so that, you know, as, as a SOC analyst, you can synthesize these views together. That would be a heck of a lot easier if, um, if the OEMs would congeal around a set of standards that, uh, that allow us to build products that scale much better. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think over time some of that will naturally occur. I know there's a number of conversations happening um, between OEMs, uh, security vendors, as well as the end users to try to get to you know a more uh, a more common place there. Um, you know, part of the challenge is you know as you know the the shelf life on these things isn't short, right? So. Um, many organizations, most are not in a position to rip and replace anytime soon. But when you think about the new solutions that are rolling off uh, the assembly line, I think there's going to be a greater appetite in the future for, you know, for, for more common standards and, and a level of openness that um, wasn't considered uh, in the past just because um, there was less of a, a value proposition from a security perspective. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And one other thing that kind of strikes me as an opportunity 
moving forward besides standardization and, 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 and more close collaboration ahead of installation, you know, between security folks, operators, and OEMs is, you know, thinking at a high level about the differences between IT data and OT data. Um, you know, I've often thought, look, IT data is kind of interesting, but there's only so much business value embedded in the fact that, you know, Sally checked her email at 822 or Joe authenticated onto a domain controller, right? Um, but the data that's coming off of OT networks, uh, whether that's, you know, an IoT device, it's a fleet asset, it's, uh, it's a ICS SCADA system, um, that data is, is data representing like the revenue generating side of your business. And uh, my hypothesis, which is often proven with, with customers, is there are opportunities to take that data, not only you know, do the sort of observability anomaly detection stuff to make sure that you're, you're mitigating the risks that you can mitigate, but also are there ways of opt- optimizing the way that you're doing operations based on this sort of new, more enriched stream of data? Or uh, to a point you made earlier, are there ways that you can um, detect anomalies in such a way that it's not you're, you're not just scooping up cyber anomalies, but you're also um, uh, detecting operator errors uh, or detecting maintenance issues ahead of uh, ahead of them coming. I feel like there's um there's there's sort of a level of abstraction above this, which is uh, data aggregation, enrichment, and cleaning, so that you can present it to consumers of that data one consumer of which would be cybersecurity. You know, have you seen trends like this in the ICS SCADA space or do you have hypotheses about how uh, how we might be able to, to, to get towards that? So I, I have. I, I think, you know, one of the factors driving a lot of the ITOT convergence is, you know, I, I think what you're describing, which is taking data from the shop floor, bringing to the top floor, so to speak, and, and being able to actually extract business value from uh, very um, like tactical operational data um, that that's you know that that's happening in real time on on the plant floor um, it's there are also a number of um, you know predictive analytic use analytics use cases around maintenance um, and, and safety as well that we see businesses um, taking advantage I, I agree 100% that um, cyber is is just one piece of it, and when you think about security on the OT side, um, given what we discussed about you know how the nature of attacks doesn't um, necessarily trigger the, the traditional security alarms that that would um, that would that would go off on the IT side. If you're not taking into account all of those different um, types of user data and, and, and system data on the OT side, um, then, then you're not getting the full picture of, of the, the threat landscape, or, or in this case, the, the cyber risk. Um, so I, I think that's really important. Important. You absolutely have to take into account uh, all of that data. Some of it provides security value. Um, but a lot of it provides all sorts of business value that, um, that I think you know, forward-thinking organizations are, are already le- leveraging. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's an exciting possibility because, you know, fundamentally, security and risk mitigation are cost centers, right? And yeah. 
when you're when you're trying to convince an organization, particularly one that's struggling, you know, of which you know, as you illuminated, water treatment facilities are are continually being asked to do more with less. I think there's just you know my my thought is that there's there's a way of coupling all of these things so that you can be cost neutral or profit generating and also mitigating risks and it's just kind of a win 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 across the board so i think it's incumbent upon technologists to like figure out ways where we can we can deliver that whole package to an organization and 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 make it a really compelling upgrade you know i think that's right um, I guess last kind of question, knowing as much as you know, and having the, the deep experiences you have dealing with these issues, are you generally hopeful of the directions that we're going? Uh, and, you know, if you if you could put in place one kind of um, uh, cultural improvement or policy change or thought process to, to make us get to a better place in five years, what would that be? I'm glad you asked that question um, because a lot of these conversations can can divulge to kind of doom and gloom. This this guy is false. security nihilism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and um, I I am quite optimistic. Uh, the, the silver lining of of events like um, like Oldsmar and others that we've seen over the last couple of years um, is that really heightens awareness and focuses folks' attention on. Um, on, on, on the top risks as it relates to, to security. Um, and for a number of years, um, OT security was kind of this, you know, distant threat. It was hard to kind of grasp. Um, oftentimes it was sensationalized, you know, in the media and elsewhere. And uh, events like Goldsmar um, and some others that we've seen, I think bring it to life and, and um, focus our attention on, you know, how we could address it in, in bite-sized consumable pieces. So when I think about, you know, those, those bite-sized consumable pieces over the next three to five years, um, it, it's really about dealing with the problem of <clears throat> not the highly resourced, sophisticated state-sponsored actor, um, but, but those far less sophisticated attacks and making sure that, that the right controls are in place um, so that it's not so easy for, uh, for folks to, to perpetrate what happened, you know, down in Florida, uh, earlier this year. Um, that's not a, not a trivial thing, especially given the resource constraints. Um, I think, you know, organizations to the extent that they, they can, um, they can think of their IT OT convergence strategy um, with security in mind are going to be positioned to be the most efficient with how they resource it um, and and the most kind of tailored in in the types of risks that they're they're trying to reduce um, you know and and I think it starts with for a lot of organizations just some of the blocking and tackling initiatives around having you know real-time asset management in place, Full visibility of your your OT environment to a degree that that you would expect on your IT environment, right? Um, and and moving to this zero trust mindset and and, and architecture ultimately, um, where you no longer are are, are willing to trust, um, you know that that uh, you know the, the operations of your your industrial control systems are are occurring in the way they're supposed to be occurring, um, and. Uh, I think that that would be um, that would be a big win if we can we can kind of 
get to a universal um, buy-in on that approach over the next you know three to five years and start putting those fundamentals in place uh, around asset management visibility and, and ultimately security monitoring in a, in, in a manner that's going to be um, uh, integrated and consumable by, by the enterprise. Yeah, I think that's really smart, Dave. Well, uh, this has been an awesome conversation. I love the article. I appreciate the work you're doing to try and make critical infrastructure safer and more secure and potentially uh, more, more effective. Uh, and would love to have you on the show uh, again real soon. Thanks, Josh. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.